0: Bearing Witness, part of the Racial Reckoning Project, is a reflective dive into the events unfolding in this season of racial upheaval and, we hope, change. Each week, we will compare notes from the week's events, connect the dots to past and present experiences and racial patterns in America, and connect with community members from many different perspectives who are themselves trying to make sense of this moment. I'm Anthony Galloway, Executive Director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora and Senior Partner at the Dendros Group.
1: And I'm Georgia Ford, an independent journalist and founder of Black Press.
0: If you can show me how I can cling to that which is real to me while teaching me a way into the larger society, then and only then will I drop my defenses in hostility and I will sing your praises and help you to make the desert bear fruit. Ralph Ellison. The past week, we waited with bated breath as rulings on the venue, the admission of certain types of evidence, and of course, the continuation of jury selection kept us, well, maybe me anyway, glued to Miss Georgia's coverage of the trial. And we had to do this all while seeing yet more violence against communities of color and the shootings in Atlanta, leaving several of our Asian sisters dead. Unpacking all of this information and the patterns, experiences, and nuance was certainly top of mind for many of our communities. Especially the question of impartiality and the feeling that somehow a critical consciousness of the things that matter mean that you are not open to other perspectives or may not be capable of passing judgment based on the evidence in front of you. It may be the case that my consciousness feels threatening to business as usual. Regardless of where you stand, I'm going to go ahead and choose consciousness. This week, we have a special guest, Alexandria Reyes-Schroeder, who has been working to help community make sense of this moment. Well, Ms. Georgia, it's that time. we got to compare some notes. Tell us a little bit about the things that came up this week in the Derek Chauvin trial.
1: Well, there was a lot of suspense uh, the entire week as folks were waiting to find out whether or not the judge was going to change the venue. We saw the defense come into court at the top of the week, very upset about the civil settlement announcement. And as a result of city officials and even the mayor participating in that press conference, the defense said that that was grounds uh, for a, a change of venue. He felt that the jury pool had been tainted. And so uh, the judge did not rule on that immediately. Um, he, he gave it a few days. They ended up calling all of the jurors back in. Two of those jurors who had already been confirmed ended up getting excused from jury duty because they felt that that announcement that, you know, the city would be paying the George Floyd family a historic $27 million. They felt like That implied guilt. And so uh, we kind of backtracked a little bit in terms of, you know, almost having a full jury and uh, then a very slow turn uh, the next day in terms of getting people to sit on the jury. And uh, as as the week came to an end, um, the judge did announce that he would deny the change of venue request. Uh, but he would allow George Floyd's previous arrest from May 2019 to be entered in as evidence to, to support uh, the cause of death. So that will be ammunition for the defense and. Uh, at Friday afternoon, the last thing that we heard before court was over was that the judge is actually going to be seating 16 people on this jury. And before that, a lot of uh, reporters, including myself, were under the impression based on notes from the court that it would only be 14, 12 jurors uh, sitting and two alternates. And so now it looks like the judge is hoping to have four alternates.
0: Did, is there any understanding of why I mean, I I don't know what the reason would be to have more um, or what the reasoning is behind that.
1: So I do believe that that is more standard, uh, but that uh, media was under the impression it was going to be reduced due to COVID. And so when that announcement came out, it was made clear that this decision to have 16 jurors, including four alternates, was something that the judge decided back in November. Uh, But, I mean, folks have been reporting on this CNN, AP, everyone has been reporting 14 jurors since jury selection started. Mm -hmm. And so, and even in terms of uh, the conversations that they've been having in the courtroom about how many many more jurors are needed. So it's interesting that all of a sudden now, right, when everybody thinks that we are at the finish line, Uh, The judge says, oh, well, we need two more. So uh, there is supposed to be more communication coming out about it, uh, maybe even tonight or over the weekend. uh, But right now, that's all we know.
0: There, there was an interesting exchange when the prosecution was trying to rebut or refute the uh, defense's um, motion uh, to include this ev- this evidence. Well, actually, yeah, to include this evidence, um, and there was a particular interesting exchange where the prosecution was talking about um, wanting to bring in um, a, a, somebody to speak towards the trauma you know somebody who, who's an expert at, at traumatic experience, experiences or trauma and the responses to those um, and there's this really interesting exchange between the the judge who was saying that if he granted that then he must also grant widening the um, pieces of that may uh, night or, or that uh, May and 2019 evidence into the the case um, what did you make of that exchange that was happening between the prosecution and the defense? You
1: know, I think at this point, the defense is very desperate for anything that they can use as evidence to try and show that George Floyd died of something other than a knee on his neck for nearly nine minutes. And so, uh, you know, what we're seeing in these pretrial hearings is a preview of what we can expect in the actual trial. And uh, obviously, you know, the state, they have to, you know, defend Um, or, you know, try to prevent the defense from being able to allow any of this evidence in. And so uh, the state is pushing and pushing and pushing um, and also trying to contextualize. I think, you know, to talk about the trauma piece, the state wants to contextualize George Floyd's response to police interaction as a Black man. And so we, we've we heard them talk about PTSD and um, hypertension and these things as pre-existing conditions. And so for the state, it, it can help contextualize that, that police interaction that George Floyd had a year prior. Um, and so the state is trying to uh do anything that they can to, you know, not have that incident look as bad as the defense is going to try to make it look. You know, we, we, we've we already heard in these pretrial hearings, the defense is going to say that this previous police encounter shows that George Floyd died from ingesting drugs. Because when you look back the year before he had ingested drugs, he was informed by EMT, that it was, you know, it could be fatal, he could have a stroke, he could have a heart attack. And so that's what they're gonna say. They're gonna say that he acted the same way every time he encountered police, including even saying the same things. And they're going to say that it was a charade and it was an act. And so the state wants to bring in a trauma expert uh, from my standpoint and what I gathered from that exchange to contextualize when black men have encounters with police, it's it's triggering I mean, you can only see an unarmed black man die in police custody so many times before you start having trigger responses when you're encountered, you know, when you're having encounters
0: with the police. Hmm. You know, it's funny. Um, I am I'm part of the ministerial staff of St. James AME Church. And so I'm, I'm becoming in, in in seeking ordination in the church. And we were at a youth um, breakout session in one of our conferences. And one of the facilitators showed an encounter with an officer and two young men. And the goal was to get to the point that you just made, uh, Ms. Georgia, that the triggering effect, and, and it was essentially a way for this group of young folks to have the talk. And when I say the talk, I don't mean um, the birds and the bees. I'm talking about the talk that Black parents often have to have with their youth and their young folks about what this, how these encounters work. What was interesting about that exchange is that we thought that this was going to be the talk as usual, but the amount of anxiety that young, these are young folks between the ages of eight and 14. And when the video began to be played and it was clear that we were about to watch a stop by an officer that was recorded where two, 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 two young black men who had without any real cause or real evidence we're experiencing this investigation by police officers, we ended up having to stop the video because we could see on, and this is during COVID. So we could see on the screen that these young folks were having trauma informed reactions, Mm -hmm. just watching the video. And so your point um, is very poignant in this moment right now. And that's, that's it's front front of mind, especially as we had just previously a conversation about, um, the treatment of what it means to be racially conscious and how that can disqualify you right. in this case, it seems like it, that's the case. Ultimately, however, um, when I think about the jury selection, I'm also seeing in this, and our guest is going to can, you know, spoke to this in one of their Facebook posts, um, that this jury is actually looking more diverse than I actually expected at the onset. So can you tell me a little bit about who has been seated so far?
1: So after the two jurors, uh, you know, were excused, They did move forward and it seemed like they started picking more diverse uh, candidates for this jury. I will say, however, uh, one of the folks who was uh, let go was Hispanic. And so I don't think we have that representation on the jury anymore, but... Uh, So far, I believe there's uh, six or seven white individuals, uh, two black individuals and two individuals um, who are African, as well as two multiracial individuals.
0: So we're going to bring in our special guest, uh, Alex Reyes-Schroeder is um, a classmate of mine, and she was top of mind this week as I watched how she was helping to make sense of this um, from her background um, as, a, as a lawyer and an adjunct law professor. But then I also um, experienced um, Alex's work in community as part of the group that was been organizing the Central Honors Philando event. Um, Alex uh, Reyes-Schroeder is a former classmate of Philando Castillo's and a graduate of Central High School, along with myself. Um, and so I thought it'd be a good time to check in with uh, with her from her vantage point And some of the ways in that people are, are looking to her postings To help kind of make sense of this moment So Alex, please introduce yourself and welcome to the show
2: Thank you so much, Anthony. I appreciate it. It's good to be here. Um, so yeah, as you mentioned, you know, central in the house, um, graduate of St. Paul Central, very proud graduate of St. Paul Central. Um, I moved away for a while, lived in the South for about 15 years, went to school in North Carolina, practiced law in Atlanta. Um, and then I got the itch to, to move back home to the tundra. So, um, I am practicing here in the Twin Cities now. And um, as you mentioned, I also am an adjunct law professor as well. I teach a course on, on civil litigation. So um, my background is, is really more on the civil side. Um, I uh, currently work for a company, so I do banking law. And um, I am uh, one of those folks who really does not know a whole lot about criminal law. Um, you know, I, I feel an obligation to sort of educate myself. Um, because of my background as a, as a lawyer and a law professor, I do believe that I have the tools to sort of educate myself. And so I feel like I have an obligation to do that now to sort of figure out what's going on and to be able to try to explain it um, to our community because you know there, there are just so many eyes on, on Minnesota right now as this trial is proceeding.
1: Mm. Alex, I'm, I'm curious to hear from you having the experience of living in the South and knowing that Minnesota in the last few years has been coined as like Jim Crow of the North. Could you speak to maybe some of the differences that you noticed uh, having that that experience living in the South and and living here in Minnesota where we are facing a lot of disparities?
2: We face a lot of disparities. Look, Minnesota is not unique. Um, We like to think that we're different, but we have a lot of the same problems that everywhere else in the country does. I will say that a few things that I noticed... um, you know, Georgia has a much more critical mass of black folks, right? Certainly in the professional community, um, I, even just, you know, day to day seeing people in the grocery store and things like that. Um, but I will say that I felt more of a divide between black folks and white folks in Georgia. Um, to me, when I moved back to Minnesota, I, I realized that in my day to day life, I felt I won't say more trusting. I will say less distrusting <laughs> of, of of white people I didn't know. Um, there seemed to be more of a desire to at least try um, among the the dominant culture here. And I will also say one thing that I think we have that advantages our, our Twin Cities community is the diversity within the diversity. There is a beautiful allyship um, among all BIPOC. You know, communities here. So among Native Americans, Latinos, Asians, and Black folks. And Georgia is much more, the state of Georgia is much more Black and white. And so you didn't necessarily see those types of um, camaraderies, I would say, um, uh, you know, because you didn't have them as much. Um, and so um, but, you know, you still you still see the you still see on un- very unfortunate discrimination, very unfortunate police brutality. Of course, Ahmad Arbery was killed in Georgia, um, Walter Scott in South Carolina. I mean, these these things are certainly not unique to one region of the country.
0: You know, um, you know, you have a very interesting perspective, having you know lived in both places and understanding some of the ways that things um, are, are different, but also that how the, the racism is displayed differently in different places. You know, um, you know, I think about going and visiting my family in the South and seeing a much a, a much more of an overt expression there versus I see here, which make take some uncovering. But you also have an interesting perspective in that, you know, you're, you're, you have relationship not just with us watching and experiencing this moment with George Floyd, um, but also being a Black woman in America and, or in the United States, because America's North and South, right? But then also having experience and come through having to organize around the, the case for Philando Castillo, former classmate of yours. How... How are you comparing or how are you holding in space, having gone through that experience and no conviction and then now prepping for another trial um, in the same vein?
2: It's, 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 it's really hurtful. Um, it's traumatic to experience this again. I feel like it's hit our community twice. I mean, knowing Philando from high school, um, I was living in Georgia at the time, and I really felt this urge to come back. Like I wanted to be out there protesting. I wanted to be out there, um, you know, supporting our community. And um, we started a, a scholarship uh, through, through St. Paul Central, the Philando Castile Memorial Scholarship. We work in conjunction with Philando's mom, Miss Valerie, um, and and select a, a black male graduating senior from Central each year to award a scholarship to. So I did become a part of that, you know, as, as, uh, as I moved back. Um, but there are things that, you know, I, I want to have that constructive, that feeling of being able to come together in light of of something tragic that happened here. But I didn't want to have to do that again so fast. I mean, really ever. But just a couple years later now, we're dealing with the death of George Floyd here. I I've been doing a lot of comparisons between the um, Yanez trial, so Geronimo Yanez is the officer who, who shot Philando and this current trial, the Chauvin trial, um, for, for the killing of, of George Floyd. And I really do think that there are some. Significant differences that make me feel hopeful. Um, Anthony, you probably know this about me from high school, and my friends certainly know. I I, stri- I really strive to be hopeful. So you you may hear that and may see me as overly optimistic. Um, I, I try to be real. I definitely acknowledge, you know, the the struggles that we have in our community and and the struggles that there will be in this trial. But let me tell you a couple of things that make me um, think that this trial may be different and may lead to a different outcome. So first of all, the jury demographics. You hit on that already. Um, I mean, as of right now, we're looking at a little less than 50 percent people of color. And that is that's a lot more than what we've got in Hennepin County. So Hennepin County is about 74 percent white. Um, so, of course, we don't know. Um, Georgia, you gave the, the stats on the, the current makeup of the jury. So five white women, three black men, two white men, Two mixed women and one black woman. We do not know the um, the racial, you know, h- how the mixed and multiracial people identify, like what if they're black and white, if they're Hispanic and Asian. We, we don't know that, um, but still, they're they're people of color. They identify as biracial, so counting that, um, we I I'm I'm a person of you know color who is bi- my, multiracial, but I, I identify primarily as black. Um, but but nonetheless, those people did you know write on their questionnaires, and so that's what we that's what we go off of. Um, so the jury demographics in the Yanez trial, there were 10 white people and two black people. That's really different. That was over in Ramsey County. The Ramsey County demographics are really not that much different from here in Hennepin County. But um, that's that's where the jury ended up. I will also say the two black folks were by far the youngest people on the jury. There was a young um, Ethiopian woman who was 18 years old. I mean, literally probably after her, for her birthday, she probably got this jury summons, right? I mean, um, she had been in this country, I think about eight years. So when you just think of the dynamics of somebody that young, um, potentially, you know, vulnerable, impressionable, I don't know what we can only imagine what happened in the, in the, in the jury room. Um, but, but that I do think that that plays a role. The young black man was African American. He was also very young, recent high school graduate. Um, and he was a manager at a fast food restaurant. So when you compare, you know, those two folks with the white folks who were like 40s, 50s and 60s, I mean, those types of dynamics really do have a role to play as far as what the deliberations might look like and what the verdict might be. And of course, as we know, in that case, Yanez was acquitted. The second thing that makes me um, think that this case, the Chauvin trial is different, is that the underlying facts. Um, particularly, you know, the split second decision of a gunshot, right? Having, shooting somebody versus nine minutes of sitting there with your knee on somebody's neck. I mean, those are really significant underlying facts that, that make a case different. Um, you know, a lot of times people will give the benefit of the doubt to an officer who has to make a split second decision. This was not a split second decision. This was, this was prolonged. And, and, you know, I mean, a lot of us who saw the video, remember the look in, in Derek Chauvin's eyes and face, I mean, with his hands in his pocket, that was not the same type of situation, you know, when, uh, an officer who, who, wrongly, in my opinion, um, pulled the trigger, but it's still something that makes this case different. Of course, let's not forget in the Yanez trial, when Yanez pulled Philando over, um, he, of course, uses hmm. the magic words, he feared for mm-hmm. his life, and he only pulled Philando over. He had a, a Philando had a broken taillight, but the reason that he, uh, that Yanez initially um, spotted Philando's car and said that he looked like a suspect who was uh somebody who was a suspect in an armed robbery of a convenience store that was nearby from a few days prior. He said he looked like this guy because he had a wide-set nose. And that's a quote. Right. So I mean that's come on. That's that's all those black folks, right? I mean, when you when you think about the um the pretext behind that reason for pulling him over. So I just think that there are underlying facts that are going to make this case different. The last thing I'll say is that I do believe that the needle has moved in the past year since George Floyd was killed as far as certainly our community dialogue and and even the national dialogue um, around systemic racism. Um, and I, I think that it has maybe not advanced. Some people will say a lot. I think it's moved a little, but I think it's enough to make jury selection so different in this case. You did not see questions on the, um, the jury selection questionnaire in the Yanez trial that had to do with beliefs of systemic racism in the in the justice system. People didn't know what that meant, you know, four years ago. And so I really do think that people um, maybe who didn't even have an understanding of that a year ago, white right? people who didn't have an understanding of that a year ago uh, have, have had to learn about that. I've seen that even in the jury selection in this case. There are white people, y'all, who are who are leaving the, the room crying and saying they can't be impartial. And I, I don't think that happened in the Yanis trial, and I don't think that that would have happened had this case happened four years ago. But I, I do think that those are things that are going to be significant factors that, that prayerfully and hopefully will lead to a different outcome in this case.
1: You know, I'm so thankful that you gave that uh, breakdown of comparing the uh, trial process for Philando to George Floyd. And I'm curious to know your thoughts on, you know, giving the context of what's happened in our community. Do you think that Philando Castile, Justine Damond, and Jamar Clark played a role in how big of a response our community had to the killing of George Floyd? I do think they
2: played a role. I definitely do, um, you know certainly Philando and probably Justine Damon as well. I think that jamar Clark I did not live here at the time that Jamar Clark was killed, so I will say that I probably don 't have as good of a perspective on what the on the ground community response was to so, so, to be fair about that
1: but i I, I think there was like a a eighteen day occupation. At the uh, precinct precinct in North Minneapolis in the middle of winter. It was like Mm -hmm. freezing cold out community. uh, They like stayed out there 24 hours a day for 18 days straight. And um, some folks were like sitting in the lobby of the uh, precinct there on, uh, what is it, Plymouth. So there was, I think from what I've heard from organizers, because I was actually also in Georgia at that time, Mm -hmm. I think that uh, community organizers kind of really started coming together to stand against police injustice when um, Jamar Clark was killed.
0: Well, you know, I I think it's important to know, too, that that, because I have so I got I was I said I got to be. I was so I was here, and one of the things that started to happen was these interesting coalescing yeah. around um, organizing. I mean, folks raised a like folks raised a ridiculous amount of food for folks facing hunger, simultaneous to occupying, simultaneous to being a, a, a presence there. Right. So I think I think uh, it's it's a very interesting um, uh, point, to, particularly for the coalescing of movement.
2: But yeah, Georgia answered your question. I definitely think. I mean, this. I think that the response has probably increased, right? Each time over time, and especially. This last year was just hard. I mean, of course, these shootings have been painful every time they happen. But, um, you know, Breonna Taylor happened last year. Um, Of course, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery. I mean, not a police officer, but somebody trying to act like one. I mean, I I think that it was sort of a, there was just a culmination last year. Of course, in addition to, um, you know, just the different dynamics of everybody being home uh, due to COVID. But of course, I mean, we saw the international response. And, you know, I don't know, how you all feel, but just as a native Minnesotan, this, this is, it's painful. Like I feel, I feel embarrassed. I, I don't want, you know, my home to be known for this. Like, why did this have to happen here is what I ask myself a lot. And, um, you know, I, I think what makes me sort of get out of that is the prayer that what is this going to look like in five years? Are we going to be a beacon of, of hope and maybe doing something right? up here to be able to be an example for, for other places in the country? Or are we going to be saying the same thing in five years when another Black man is shot by the police? And and I want to figure out what we can do to have the, the former happen and not the latter.
0: You know, I think about watching this unfold this week, and I don't know how you all have <laughs> were experiencing it, but this level of incredulity for me has been rising um since the first conversation we had miss georgia i've 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 had this thing rising in me um and 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 it's and it's multifold. One of them is this notion that one that i'm on that my own consciousness would be on trial from from demonstrating an, uh, something that's supposed to be a civic duty. And how somehow this insinuation, this this dog whistle insinuation that to be impartial, you have to be disconscious—that That is how it's reading to me. And that's been problematic for me. And it's been frustrating me watching this coverage. But the other thing that's been rising in incredulity actually goes to your hopefulness, Alex. And and as I hear you lay lay that out, um, I, I actually do agree that there's some needles moving. But don't. But but I'm also getting folks who are saying things like, "We're finally waking up as a as a country, and we're getting more conscious," and that's great. But folks have been screaming this for 400 years, and so this incredulity bar is just rising up, and it's and and I didn't realize that it was weighing on me until I, I listened to um, listened to some of the the work of of Reshma and, and Dr. Joy Lewis, and 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 noticing that oh wait. All this whole week, my stomach, I've been feeling this tension in my stomach. And I had to investigate it. I had to go and 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 touch it and say, what is going on? And ask investigate that question. And then that's when I started to uncover this, this, this thing that, you know, we're reacting to all the things that are happening right now. But but every time I see somebody, in particular somebody in white body, say, We're waking up, we're growing more conscious, the things are changing. I have this thing in the back of my mind that says why does it take yet more black blood black and bro- the blood of black and brown bodies dark body individuals in this country in order for this consciousness to happen is it not enough to be able to tell you to say it to put the patterns to to give all of the the this 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 data in front of us to us to look at our own history is that not enough so I'm, I'm just curious to say to see where the frustration has been rising for you all if at all throughout this these weeks?
2: You know, for me, I, I've been living with my head down, focusing on this moment. I think that all of the feelings you describe, I share. Um, I certainly felt those over the months after George Floyd was killed, when I had friends reaching out out of nowhere, wanting to talk about things, wanting me to explain things to them and... I had a lot of frustration, like, you know, why can't you look it up yourself? Why can't you read a book? And why yes, are you asking Google me? Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure a lot of us felt that, you know. But, um, you know, in this moment, I I really feel like I have an obligation as somebody with a legal background. You know, when we sort of have a joke among Uh, Myself and and some lawyer friends, like we just, you know, everybody always asks us for legal advice, right? And most of us are specialized in some way. So, you know, I do civil law, banking law. I have a friend who does patent litigation. Um, I have another friend who does employment. We don't know each other's jobs. Like, we can't do each other's jobs. I don't really understand what my best friend does. Like, (laughs) I kind of know, but, and so you know, there's a bit of frustration when we get asked those questions. Like, let me Google this right quick. But at the same time, I honestly feel humbled and I feel like I have an obligation to try. Like usually that might be giving, you know, getting you a referral for somebody who can help um, or something like that, or at least trying to do a quick Google search or a Westlaw search to say, okay, let me point you in the right direction. I can't represent you, but let me at least try to help out. And the reason I feel an obligation to do that is that I feel humbled when, you know, folks from Central, Anthony from high school reach out to me with questions. It's because I realize that I'm the only lawyer they know. And that's, that's humbling. And that makes me feel like I do have some type of obligation to help. And so in this moment for me, I'm trying to put my head down and I'm trying to um, educate myself on the process of what's going on. Like I said, I don't I don't um, I'm not out, out there litigating now, but um, I certainly have the foundation to be able to sort of know, know generally how jury selection works, how certainly motions to continue and motions for change of venue. I did those all the time. Um, and of course when you get into the motions in Limini, the questions about evidence, like I'm very familiar with those. But there are certain parts of criminal trials that are extremely, extremely different, right? And so for me to be able to at least educate myself on, on those things, to be able to help my friends understand, I prefer to stick to Facebook because you know, I like being able to share with people who agree with me or who want to ask smart questions or even <laughs> not so smart questions. I'm not trying to get on Twitter and have trolls come bother me. I want to share with my community. And um, as we as we go through this, you know, I want people to be able to understand. Like I said, this is um, not only do I have an obligation as a lawyer, but I feel like I have an obligation as a Minnesotan um, for having lived away for 15 years. I have a lot of people in Georgia and North Carolina hitting me up and asking, you know, what's going on. And so I'm really just trying to, to learn, to follow. Um, Georgia, your reporting has been really spot on and incredible. So thank you for what you're doing for the community as well. Um, And, you know, we just uh, continue to follow as we, as we pray for, for a conviction, honestly.
1: No, thank you so much. And, you know, Anthony, to your question, I think I find myself frustrated a little bit every day. And uh, for a variety of different reasons, Uh, being the person who a lot of folks in community are counting on to disseminate information, uh, I'm like following this oftentimes minute by minute. And sometimes there's something happening and not a lot of people on my stream. So I know people didn't see it. And so I try to cut clips and highlight things that are happening that are problematic. And so you know, it's it's always frustrating to say like, OK, I, I have an obligation to share this information um, because oftentimes what happens is the community responds and, and the community uses its voice to try to uh, hold officials accountable. Like, for example, when we saw a, a woman from Mexico dismissed off the jury and the judge, his explanation was, oh, it's not a language barrier, it's rather that she just wasn't that sophisticated. There was a direct community response to the me releasing that clip, even from, you know, speeches in, in protests that happened, demanding a fair jury selection. And so it's frustrating to see these injustices play out in real time and then try to figure out a way to break that down for a community to interpret and respond to thoughtfully, you know, so I find myself a little frustrated. And then also, I think from a media standpoint, uh, in being independent, it is a lot to undertake in providing live coverage every single day. And so I'm having my own personal frustrations with technology. Hmm. (laughs) Um, And, you know, just wanting to be a dependable source, but having capacity and having uh, technical issues sometimes that are out of, you know, our control. So it you know, it has been very eye-opening. The last thing I'll say, recently we saw a lot of families who have lost a loved one by the hands of police go down to the Hennepin County Government Center in solidarity with one another and with other community who's supporting them. And they wrote names of their loved ones or other folks across the country who have been killed by police. So they wrote it on little locks and they put those locks on, the fence in front of the government center. Mm. And it was a beautiful, peaceful display uh, by community for community to memorialize people who had been killed by police. And in the middle of the night, the national guard went and cut the locks.
0: Wow. Wow.
1: And It breaks my heart because, I mean, that's like going to a grave site, you know, and removing a marker like this was a way for community and peacefully. Those locks aren't hurting anybody. Those locks are not breaking the fence or preventing the fence from protecting the Hennepin County Government Center. Those locks aren't doing anything. What was the need to cut them? Why, why cut them off? What You know, I just, I don't understand the thought process. And so when we see response like that from officials or law enforcement or National Guard, anybody who is supposed to be protecting and serving, it reinforces this idea that they're protecting and serving a certain portion of the population and dismissing how another portion of the population feels and has been affected and what their needs are.
0: You know, that story. Um and thank you for sharing it. Thank you for bringing that to light cuz I did not know about that. Um but it but it underscores something that this shift that is happening has to also contend with. When we look at historical pattern, right? This is my this, this is the background I came up in in ethnic studies and, and critical racial discourse. The, the thing that I am seeing as a pattern is that in moments of consciousness raising in the United States, there is also a response. And that response has been bloody at times, it's been overt in our face at times, it has disrupted centers of black excellence from Tulsa to Okoe over time. But one thing that also happens is you know this space of not knowing what to do and 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 feeling like this change is somehow a threat that somehow being calling to light these things that are wrong in our society or that or that are have been in front of our face and we've had the luxury of ignoring forever and a day is actually a threat to us instead of solely being a threat to supremacy and disconsciousness in our society, and we personalize it to ourselves. And it allows us to do things like completely blow through and disregard the beautiful example. And I would call it art because because it's also an artistic thing to me to, to have a display of locks with the names on it. To call attention to something is beautiful and ingenious. But to blow through that and not be able to see the connection there, to me, registers as this consciousness, which should be held just as much up. As as a as a as an an assessment of somebody's capability of doing their civic duty, as racial consciousness um, should tell should should show uh, a demonstration that somebody has done some deep thought and therefore will be thoughtful in the execution of their duty, and 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 so this this dichotomy is something that is just it's it's continuing to boil over and to see it happen and to see it happen in patterns. I have to go back. To 1994, or is it 92? Right. We saw a response. Rodney King, we saw the trial, we saw the reaction, we saw the unrest, and we saw the, the, the inch forward in consciousness. We got, we went from, from a, a complete ignorance to a multiculturalism, right? And then we have these continued incidents that keep pushing us to say, no, you haven't let move to a place of consciousness. This is why I started with the Ralph Ellison quote that says it's only when you uh, it's only when i can hold on to that which is real to me while engaging in this larger dominant society that i'll drop the hostilities and in this case it means that i'll i'll stop pushing and i may stop pushing right if you want to get me to stop pushing then you need to make some changes ultimately and so you know as we, as we as we as we wrap up here i'm 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 thinking about in the context of all of that how am I going to be me to my son, my family, to my grandmother, who's now fully vaccinated? And in two weeks, I'll be, I'll be fully vaccinated and can go and kiss her on the mouth and be all <laughs> up in her face. Like, I have to think about how I'm going to be me in the context of all of that. And so we always end with that question. In this moment, in this week, week by week, how are you being you in this moment? So not rhetorical, I'm actually asking us all. How are you being you in this moment?
2: I think I'm being me with, with my hope and with my desire to help educate about the process. Um, certainly my hope, a lot of it is stemming from what I think is a positive, um, jury demographic right now, even if there are, you know, as, as Georgia mentioned, we still need a a few more alternates now, but even if no more people of color are chosen, this is, the most diverse jury that I remember in a, a police shooting of, of a black man, um, certainly far more diverse than uh, the Giannis trial, you know, who killed Philando Castile. And that shouldn't have to be the only difference that shouldn't make the difference. Right. But, but I do think that it will be significant. I really do. And I would certainly be a lot more worried, so much more worried if the jury were not as diverse and, and, tremendously worried if the case was moved, if, if the judge had granted the defendant's motion for change of venue. But given that it's staying here, given that it's moving forward, um, I feel like there are reasons to to be hopeful. Um, and I do just want to continue helping people make sense of this process. Um, there are a lot of things that I know are, are foreign to, to people and how, you know, I, I like to say that it's not so much jury selection, it's more jury elimination. Like you've got a big pool and you're plucking people out more so than you're pointing at them and saying you're in. So sort of kind of trying to understand that and navigate how it works. Um, I, I just, I, I feel, I feel uh, a, a humble obligation to, to my community. And I, I, I hope to be able to continue sharing in that way.
0: Ms. Georgia, how are you being you in this moment? By continuing to
1: tell our stories. And I feel so grateful Uh, that I have my family support because they understand the magnitude of this moment and the need that I have, the obligation I have to my community, which is so important to me uh, to, to wake up every day and, and follow this trial minute by minute to uh, push to have as much access as folks at CNN and AP have Hmm. um, so that I can have a firsthand account of, of what's happening. Uh, my husband is, you know, picking up our kids a lot more than normal. Um, and and we know that there are seasons and seasons where I've had our kids a lot more so he lean into the things that are important to him. And so I, you know, I think week by week for me, the thing that is is standing out in this season of this trial is just being able to be the storyteller that I am and um. Feeling very encouraged and inspired that uh, the community is supporting me in in being in this position, and uh, it, that I mean that truly means the world to me.
0: I thank you both for sharing that. For me, being me in this moment means clinging on to radical consciousness to be to pull even closer to to unpack even deeper these patterns these coded language and these institutional practices that are staying in front of us because i owe it to my son and my daughter and my my um nieces and nephews to be able to have a cogent point when they ask me the question why is why are we still going through and seeing all of this hot mess and i need to be ready to held account to my own generation and our inability to get this right and so holding on to that critical radical consciousness has been something that has um, given me a a, a a light a North star to lean into I thank you so much for joining us Alex um, and Miss Georgia for your continued coverage to help us stay uh, connected to what's what's real and what matters in this in in this case and in this time frame. thank you so much for giving of your time and continually uh, to being there to help us all and of course we got to end with the quote that Miss Georgia brought in how we end.
1: That's right. In the words of Dr. Joy Lewis, may the revolution be healing. This is Bearing Witness with Anthony in Georgia. This show is a production of Racial Reckoning, the Arc of Justice, a journalism project created and supported by Ampers, Diverse Radio for Minnesota's Communities in partnership with KMLJ Radio and the Minnesota Humanities Center.